But this morning, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 6. So you can turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. And we're going to study the Lord's teaching on prayer. As we think about prayer, I want to ask you a question. What is prayer? You can just say it out loud. What is prayer? Talking to God. Right. Now, God is a person. God is spirit. But he's also a person in that he's personable. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. There's nothing that we can go through that he doesn't understand on a very deep level because of Jesus Christ. And uh, so when we talk to him, it's not quite like just talking to a, you know, a friend uh, or a family member. But in another sense it is. It's not because he's high and he's holy. And we need to be careful about our speech. We need to approach God reverently. But at the same time, he understands us. It's not like we have to get into a religious mindset when we talk to God. He just wants to hear from us where we're at because he knows us. He knows our strengths. He knows our weaknesses. And we just talk to God. That's a good definition. We just talk to God. Anybody else want to comment on that? Someone has described prayer as the very breath of dependence. Prayer is the humble acknowledgement that we are not masters of our own fate. Why would someone take the time to pray? Well, because they realize they're not going to get it done in the force of their own strength. They need God's help, and that requires humility. And when we truly understand our human condition, and we truly understand who Jesus is, we can't live life without a measure of humility. And when we take our eyes off of Christ, it's pretty easy to get proud and to feel like we're, we're sufficient of ourselves to accomplish things when we're not, and prayer reminds us that we're not. Prayer is the way we communicate and fellowship with God, and prayer is also the way we get things done. And what I mean by that is, do you remember when Jesus was in the garden and uh, his probably the, the most trying hour of his life had come? And there he was preparing for the cross, and he, he asked his three disciples to come a little ways with him. And he said, Peter, James, and John, you pray uh, while I go over here and pray. And he came back, and by the way, our Lord was praying to his Father. If the Lord, who was God made manifest in the flesh, needed to pray, we who are sons of God through Jesus, to them gave you power to become the sons of God, we're like Jesus. Not just like him, but we're like him in that the Holy Spirit comes and resides in us, and we have an inheritance, we're co-heirs with him, of all the glory that's going to come at the end of time, at the appointed time of the Father. All of those are promises of God were like him, but even he had to pray. So we had better pray. But he was with his disciples, so he said, you pray, and I'll go over here for a little while. And he came back, and he found that his disciples were sleeping. He said, rise and pray, lest you enter into temptation. Their eyes were heavy. And so he understood, but he also encouraged them, fight the flesh and pray, because you realize what hour this is? And he went again, and he came back, and they were sleeping. And he said the same thing. And a third time, he went away and he prayed. And he came back, and you're, maybe you've come across this in the Gospels, like I have, and I've said, what does Jesus mean? The third time he came back and he said, it is enough. Do any of you recall seeing that? That little phrase, it is enough, Jesus said. Well, that little, that little word in Greek is aneke. And commentators have kind of scratched their, their heads over it. What, what does this mean? Well, contextually, I think this is what's in view. Jesus said, it is enough. 
He had three separate times where he had to prepare his heart, though it were as blood dripping like sweat. He had enough time to prepare his heart through prayer, and now he was ready to go to the cross. And I think that's what little, that little word aneke means. It is enough. I've had time with my father, and now I'm ready to accomplish redemption for mankind. How did the Lord do that impossible task? Well, first by saying, Father, not my will, but thine be done. There was a sacrifice of all of the desires that he could have had and a yielding to the will of his father, which is great strength. It's not like some people will say, well, his will wasn't to do the father's will because he didn't want to go to the cross. Well, no, Jesus wanted the will of the Father more than anything, and the Father wanted him to go to the cross, so Jesus wanted to go to the cross. But this was no light task to become sin for us because he knew no sin. And only through him becoming sin could we ever be made the righteousness of God. That was an atoning death he was about to suffer, the sins of the world on his shoulders. And so, Father, if there's any way that this cup can pass for me, I pray that it will pass. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. How did Jesus do that? Through prayer. Prayer is the way we get things done. If we harbor pride or proud thoughts in our hearts, that's going to prevent us from ever praying or wanting to pray. Especially in light of our materialistic society, where we deny you know, the invisible realities. And we did, did deny life hereafter. The motto of our culture is just live for yourself and live for the present. And uh, if we slowly adopt these things, prayer will become more and more of an absurdity rather than a necessity in our lives. So we're going to look at the Lord's Prayer. And I hope we can find some nuggets of truth that will encourage our own prayer lives. Let's look at Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 15. Jesus said to his disciples, When thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets that they might be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet, and when thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy Father which is in secret, and thy Father which sees in secret shall reward thee openly. But when you pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do, For they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. Be not ye therefore like unto them. For your Father knows that you have what you have need of before you ask him. After this manner, therefore, pray ye. So he's saying, you don't have to pray these exact words, but after this pattern, after this manner, these are some of the principles that need to be included in prayers that honor the Father. And then he says, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. And thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And then he spends two verses re-emphasizing a point that he mentioned in the prayer. And look at the subject of these two verses, verses 14 and 15. For if you forgive men their trespasses, Your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Let's open with a word of prayer and ask for his help as we study this passage. Dear Jesus, our humble desire is that we 
learn from Matthew 6, 5 through 15 and any other verses that might be relevant to this study. And I pray that you will encourage and strengthen each of our prayer lives and increase our longing for the coming of Christ as a result of this lesson. And also I pray that missionaries on the field, including Mickey and I, will be more effective as a result of the prayers of your people and even prayers from this congregation. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So in verses 5 through 8, Jesus is simply saying the disciples shouldn't pray like the hypocrites or like many of the Pharisees of the day. Their, their joy in life came from how other people regarded them. And so they would enjoy dressing up. They'd enjoy being viewed by other people, uh, maybe in the synagogue or in the streets. And they enjoyed being called rabbi. And when they made these prayers, they would use this religious or theological jargon that made them sound like the educated, like, wow, they really have a tight connection with God. When in reality, they, do, they were doing it all for show. And Jesus said, if you really want to talk to the Father and have him hear you, you won't approach him that way. You'll just talk to him. Like we said, what is prayer? Talking with God. If you really want God to hear you, you'll just talk to him. There's not some special language that we adopt when we're talking to God, our Father, who knows us better than anyone else does. He knows who you are. So just talk to him and tell him your needs and tell him your desires and tell him your trials and ask for his help. That's all. But don't be like the hypocrites who pray just for what other people will think of them. Those prayers don't reach the Father and they displease him. Um, he also said in those first few verses that it shouldn't be vainly repetitious. You know, Jesus did teach that we need to be repetitive. In other words, remember his parable when he talked about uh, the woman who wanted to be avenged of her adversary. And she kept coming to the king. King, avenge me of my adversary. Avenge me of my adversary. And over time, the king finally avenged her. And Jesus said, you need to learn a lesson from that. If this king, who's not as kind and benevolent as your heavenly father, if he will finally answer this woman to be avenged of her adversary, how much more will the heavenly father answer the saints who cry out to him day and night. He hears them, and I tell you, he will answer speedily. In other words, Jesus was saying, when you're praying for something that is in accord with God's will, don't let him go. You keep praying for that thing. And sometimes I think that's easiest when there's a burden on our heart. We come to the Lord multiple times a day praying for an answer to this request. And that's not vainly repetitious. That's just importunate, if I can use that kind of old English word we don't use too often anymore. It just means you keep asking, but with the right spirit. That's not vainly repetitious. Uh, the pagan nations, when they would cry out to their gods, remember they would, um, the, uh, remember the false prophets with Elijah? They cried out to their god, and they cut themselves, and they were crying out for hours, and that was all vain, and their gods didn't hear them. Well, they were treating their God kind of like a big vending machine in the sky where you just throw up enough prayers, eventually he'll answer you because haven't you worked hard enough to get the answer? But that's not the way our God is. Our God is personal and he wants us to talk to him as if he's personal. He's high and holy, so we don't approach him irreverently, but we just talk to him. And uh, Jesus is saying, don't approach God the Father like the pagans who don't know God. Don't be vainly repetitious. There will be times, though, when we need to be importunate. But that's not the same as just talking and talking and talking. Thinking will be heard for our much speaking. You know, sometimes I've thought, I've got to spend 20 or 30 minutes in prayer every day. And I think that's a good habit because there's always enough to pray for. 
But at the same time, I've had to learn on days that are, you know, very busy. Well, is the Lord displeased with a five or 10 minute prayer? Well, I want to be careful not to get in the habit of just praying just a couple minutes a day. Uh, there might be days when that's all you have. But at the same time, you know, our, our God knows our needs. And it's not like a two-minute prayer displeases him. It may not be a 30-minute prayer, but it doesn't mean that a two-minute prayer displeases him. If you have enough time to communicate with him sincerely and state your need, and maybe praise him, remembering how good he has been in your life, how good he's been in the past with the saints of ages past, and just reflecting on God a little bit. When we pray, it doesn't have to be 30 minutes. And so I think that that's included here. You don't have to be vainly repetitious as if God won't hear you otherwise. Because we're his children, and so he's our father. Now Jesus said in the actual prayer, which is a pattern for our prayers, he said, Our Father which is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Hallowed is another word we don't use too much, but I don't think it's a, the meaning has escaped all of us because we hear the Lord's Prayer often enough and we know the context, hallowed. But hallowed just means it's something is set apart as holy or unique or very, very valuable. It's hallowed in our minds or it's sanctified in our minds. It's set apart and higher than anything else. There was a, an evangelist who came by Maranatha one time and he said something about God that I've never forgotten. And he said, he said, God is the only perpetual novelty. And I don't think he was trying to be sacrilegious, but he was just saying of all the things in life that we could chase and pursue, God is the only one who can really satisfy our hearts. If you think about for all eternity, we're going to be worshiping him for the amazing work that he did in the lives of saints on the earth. That'll be enough for us to glorify him for all ages. Uh, God, there's enough of him that we can know that makes us deeply respect and fear and love him. But there's also some things about God that are mysterious and probably for eternity will be um, to some degree that will cause us always to worship and adore and love him. He is the only perpetual novelty in life. And that's why the, the true believer needs to say in his heart, hallowed be thy name in my life. Because it's easy for, for God not to become hallowed. If we spend enough time with the ideas in the world, then we're not going to think of God's name as sanctified or hallowed. So it's got to be a conscious effort. Hallowed be thy name, Jesus says. And he started out by saying, our Father which art in heaven. There was a movement that was really strong in the early 1900s that we're all brothers. Everybody in the world is brothers and God is our father. That was more of a liberal theology. Uh, but still the idea goes around today. Like, you know, it doesn't really matter what religion you are. We're all going to the same place. Well, that's not what the Bible teaches about the true God or about Jesus Christ, his son. And so we have to be careful that we don't think, well, God is everybody's father. God is everybody's creator. So everybody's accountable to him, but he's not everybody's father. He's the father to those who come to him on his terms, for those who come to him through Jesus Christ. And uh, when we pray, that's the kind of relationship we must have, otherwise we cannot pray. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Then he says this, thy kingdom come. An interesting study about the kingdom is if you go through all the Old Testament and look up the, the, uh, the mention of kingdom, well, granted, it's in an Israelite context, more of a theocratic context. But a lot of those kingdom passages look forward to the day when Messiah will come and reign in the kingdom. And those Old Testament Israelites 
We're looking forward to the Messiah reigning in Jerusalem from the throne of David over all the earth in a kingdom of glory and power and perfect justice. The world has never seen that. Now, Jesus Christ, the perfect judge and the perfect king, walked the earth, but the earth wasn't ready to receive him. He came unto his own, and his own received him not, but to as many as received him. To them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. And so the king walked the earth, but Jesus' outstanding promise, something of prophecy that still needs to be fulfilled, is that Jesus will return, and he will reign in that prophesied kingdom. If you even look through the New Testament and all the mentionings of the kingdom, they fit perfectly with the context of the Old Testament kingdom, which means that Jesus will come and he will reign from the throne of David over all the earth. And in the day today, when the earth and believers groan within themselves, waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our bodies, you know, we just sang it in a song and I was noticing it how Jesus is coming again. And it was talking about how nature talks about it. Well, that's true. Nature's groaning for the time when Jesus will come and reign on the earth. And believers, if the Spirit's truly in us, though maybe we've not connected all the dots before, if the Spirit is truly in us, then we long for the return of Jesus Christ when perfect justice can be worked out as it ought to be on the earth. And it hasn't happened yet. And Jesus said, if God's your Father... And if you really want to pray in a God-pleasing way, then you long in your heart and utter with your mouth, thy kingdom come. Because Jesus is going to have his day. Right now it's a day of suffering for Jesus. And now I know he's been glorified, but his church, his church largely suffers in this day and age. And they're misunderstood and they're mistreated. But the day is coming when the church will not be misunderstood and the church will not be mistreated. But Revelation talks of a day when the church, believing saints of all ages, they will rule and reign with Christ in that kingdom that's been prophesied, which we see come up in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Now, I know that some of you who might, you know, are Bible scholars, you're probably thinking, well, what about those times in the New Testament where the, pat, where, where the Bible says things like, uh, the kingdom of God is within you, or the kingdom of God um, could be translated there among you. Uh, the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness, faith, and and those things. Well, it is there is a spiritual element to the kingdom. But when you take all the passages together and you say, okay, to what does this point? I believe the evidence points in the, to the time when Jesus will come and reign on the earth for which we and all of creation groans. And so when we pray, thy kingdom come, we're saying, Jesus, return quickly. And, and take to yourself your great kingdom and reign because right now the devil reigns in a sense. Now he's a leashed enemy and he's a doomed enemy through the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. But at the same time, he's the prince in the power of the air. And he often works out his, his sick injustices through his vessels. And if we're not careful, we could become his vessels like Peter did. But the earth, it's, it's a burdensome time. And it's a time when the church is mistreated and misunderstood. What's the solution for the believer? to walk your walk faithfully, to live out your Christian faith sincerely, and be a testimony of the coming kingdom when righteousness will have its own day. But for now we pray, Lord, thy kingdom come, and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I think that that next, that next plea, that next desire, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, 
kind of cabooses on the previous request. Thy kingdom come. Because when the kingdom is here, God's will will be being done in the earth, just like it is in heaven. And there will be a beautiful, wonderful union between the two. And we're waiting for that day. But, you know, that's not the only time when God's will can be fleshed out in the world. When Jesus walked the earth, though the kingdom wasn't here yet, it will be, he fleshed out God's will. And those who are believers, if they're in Christ, then they too can flesh out God's will. And this is a request that to some extent can be fulfilled while we're living. Thy will be done on earth just as it is in heaven. And you got to keep this in mind. If you're truly committed to doing the will of God, there always will be some degree of resistance and suffering. All who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And uh, if we suffer, the Apostle Paul said, we will also reign with him. The Christian faith is pretty paradoxical because the kingdom isn't here yet. But we can do God's will as long as we realize there will be a measure of resistance while we do. That just means we have to submit to God's authority and God's desires. Um, Are any of you familiar with Matthew chapter 16 where the Apostle Peter says, We believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, And I tell you that you are Peter, and upon this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And then he says, I will give unto you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind upon the earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose upon the earth will be loosed in heaven. And that comes up again in Matthew 18, 18, where Jesus is talking about the authority of the church, not just Peter. Well, Catholics and other people from different theological modes of thought have taken that passage and said, wait, look, Jesus is giving all authority to Peter and all authority to the church so that when they make a decision, whatever they will, then heaven will bow to that decision. God has given, Jesus has given all authority to the Pope, who they would say Peter was the first, and, and to the church. If the church as a whole makes a decision, then that is a sure sign that God is making that very decision. Um, And someone brought this to my attention about three years ago, maybe four, and he was very cautious. He said, now listen. He said, I don't believe you need to know the Greek New Testament to really know the word of God. But he said, there are times when there are nuances from the original language, because whenever you're going from an original to a receptor language, sometimes there are things that are kind of difficult to express. Those of you who know another language in Spanish, for say, you might realize, oh, how do I say that idiom in a different language? I have to say something else because they don't have anything for that. Every once in a while, that happens in language. And the verse, I'm sorry, the words in Matthew 16, 19 and Matthew 18, 18. In Matthew 16, it's a future perfect. And uh, it's the, just the nuance of the helping verb have. In other words, in the Greek, it reads this way, to be very literal. And sometimes translators, to smooth things out, they will say it a certain way. And that's why it's helpful to do word studies and things like that. I always tell my Greek students, though, because I've taught Greek for, this is my sixth year at Maranatha. I always tell them, guys, don't you get a big head? Because the old lady who knows her English Bible knows a lot more about God than the Greek scholar who doesn't humbly walk with their God. And so these things can be used, but they're not essential for knowing our God. But they can yield insights every once in a while. 
And in Matthew 16, 19, it's a future perfect, read literally, read this way. Thou art, uh, let's see, I'm going to get it right. I will give unto you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind upon the earth will have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose upon the earth will have been loosed in heaven. It's a future perfect there. And it, it kind of affects where God's will starts. Jesus wasn't saying to Peter, Peter, whatever decision you make, heaven will smile upon that decision. Because Peter made plenty of blunders that heaven didn't smile on. And the Catholic Church, who takes that theology to the nth degree, they've made plenty of decisions that God, according to Scripture, does not smile on. So God wasn't saying, I'll give you all authority and heaven will bless everyone. God was saying, Peter, you have recognized that I am the Son of God when he said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And on the basis of that confession, if you live that confession out, then you will have all authority. But what Jesus was saying is, whatever you bind upon the earth will have been bound in heaven. In other words, people who truly know God through Jesus Christ and know that Jesus is the Son of God, they've put their faith in him and they're committed to him, then they will know what God wants. And they will do what God wants. And that's what gives them the authority of heaven is because God has already decreed it in heaven. Whatever you loose upon the earth will have been loosed in heaven. Whatever you bind upon the earth will have been bound in heaven. This means that we have to know God's mind on things. And when we act and we live in accord with God's mind, then we have the power of heaven on our side. And this is how we know God's mind. We have to be careful students of who God is as, as his will and his person has been fleshed out in the Old and New Testaments and more specifically in the person of Jesus Christ who is the image of God in human form. So thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, remember that verse in 1 John chapter 5. This is the confidence that we have in him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. In other words, it's not just what we want. Does God want it? If so, pray for it. Live for it. Work for it. And you can be confident that your prayers to do God's will are going to be effective. So thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread. We, we've got to trust the Lord for daily provision. Asking helps relieve worrying. In, um, in chapter 6, verse 31, Jesus says, Therefore take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you have need of these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And the take no thought there, uh, some, I've, I've seen some atheists who have uh, taken that idea to say Jesus taught us not to think about the morrow or to plan for tomorrow. And Jesus isn't saying don't think about it. I mean, Jesus never contradicts what's in the Old Testament, and Proverbs talks a lot about planning for tomorrow. And so we've got to be careful that we're wise stewards of what God has given us. It's not wrong to plan. We should to some degree with a godly spirit. We don't want to be like the guys in James who said, today or tomorrow we're going to go into such a city, buy there and sell and get gain. And the God wasn't even a part of their plans. And James said, you don't know what's going to be on the morrow. So don't be proud like that. So we don't want to plan like that. But we can plan. 
Um, but Jesus says, when he says take no thought, he's saying don't worry about it. Don't be consumed with all the possibilities of tomorrow that might seem negative. Don't worry about it. Because the Father cares for you. And if you live that way, it's like God's not going to take care of you. And that's not a good testimony. You know, when I'm preaching, I'm preaching to myself because many of these things apply to me. And in many of these areas, I often fall short. But don't worry about tomorrow because God will take care of you. So give us this day our daily bread. When we ask, it helps relieve worrying. It doesn't mean we shouldn't plan ahead, but it does mean that we should pray over our plans and pray to be good stewards. And then he says in verse 12, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Perhaps the hardest thing to deal with in this life, the thing that will test our faith more than any other, is our willingness to forgive. Have any of you been wronged? Have any of you felt wronged? It burns within us because we are creatures of justice. Now, when we've done an injustice, often we want mercy. But when someone has done us an injustice, we often want vengeance. But our God's not that way. Made most clear in Jesus' own willingness to die for those who hated him, for those who were opposed to him. He died. But he knew what would happen in their lives, that through his death and resurrection, they would see the light and they'd become sons of God. They'd have a totally new nature. When we forgive people, then we are freeing ourselves of bitterness that will destroy us. We're also opening ourselves up to a relationship with that person that can manifest the grace of God. And a relationship like that can do a lot more than a relationship in which we're always hoping to see them get justice. Got to give up your hope for justice, give it to God. Um, I would say most of us have, have been through really trying experiences that were trying because they required great forgiveness. If we do not forgive, then God's not going to hear our prayers, and it's just that simple. You might say, well, I've been wronged so deeply. I don't know if I can ever let this go. You know what I've found in my own life? When I've struggled with forgiveness, there were two things that I was missing. And one was the blood of Christ. Um, why was the blood of Christ shed? Is because he loved the sinners and he knew many of them would receive him as Savior and they'd be given an inheritance along with him. And what is his inheritance? His inheritance is the nations. He's going to come and reign in glory and in power. And I meditated on that and I remembered the parable where Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like. So the context is the kingdom of heaven. And then he gave the parable about an unforgiving servant. And he said, uh, there was a great king who forgave his servant an infinite debt. The servant could never pay it back. And at first the king said, I'm going to sell you and your family and as slaves. And the servant said, Lord, please have mercy. I, I'll work the rest of my life if, if you will not throw me in prison. And the king had pity. He said, okay, you're free from your debt. And that same servant went out to one of his co-servants who owed him a few hundred dollars. He took him by the throat. And he said, you pay me what you owe me. And the co-servant said, have mercy on me and I will pay you all that I owe. And he said, I'll have none of it. And he said, you pay me now or you go to prison. And he had no mercy. Well, the king caught word of it and he said, you mean that servant who I forgave an infinite debt didn't forgive his co-servant? He said, that man is going to be thrown in prison and he's not going to be let out until he pays the very last penny. And Jesus said, Actually, to Peter, mainly, because Peter's the one who said, how many times shall I forgive 
uh, my brother, seven? Peter, I say not unto these seven, but I tell you, 70 times seven. And that's when Jesus gave the parable about the kingdom. And as I meditate on that, when we refuse to forgive, we underestimate the power and the purpose of the blood of Christ. And we also underestimate the inheritance that he's given us. Because the symbol of the king is what the inheritance that we have in Christ. You know, we groan for the coming of Christ when we rule and reign in glory. How can God take an undeserving sinner and place that undeserving sinner into a glorious, perfect, incredible kingdom which is sure to come because of Christ's own resurrection. It guarantees the fulfillment. That's why his disciples could die for Christ. They had no doubt that the kingdom would come at the right time. It's guaranteed in his resurrection. Now, how can God take a sinner who's an unforgiving, often bitter, sometimes angry, uh, selfish person and bring them into this glorious kingdom where they'll rule and reign with the perfect Christ? Can't happen. Unless... The Son gives his blood for them. If you're having trouble forgiving, you're, you're underestimating the cost of the blood of Christ and also what the blood of Christ has accomplished for you. And that is an inheritance in this glorious kingdom. And if you have no faith in those things, if you don't think they're really going to happen, then you're, you're not going to find power to forgive. And that's the lesson behind the parable when Peter said, how many times do I have to forgive my brother? Peter the kingdom of heaven is like this. If you focus on the blood of Christ and the promise of his coming kingdom, then you'll find the power to forgive whatever the offense is. And then Jesus says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Spiritual warfare is not imaginary. The devil's invisible. And it seems like the devil's power in this part of the world is that he's gotten a lot of us to think that all that is in life is all that we can see. There was a billboard that was right outside Watertown, put up by the Freedom From Religion Foundation, that said, Enjoy life now. There is no afterlife. Big, plain words, right as you enter Watertown. But that is our world. If I can see it, if I can understand it, then I'll believe it. But uh, I won't believe in anything I can't see. Well, there, there are so many evidences that there's more to the world than what you can see. First of all, the testimony of the scriptures, the fulfilled prophecies, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, I think, is tops it all. But even if you go to another country and you see some demonic activity, well, how do you explain that? You can't. Unless there is a world that's unseen. And at the same time, when someone is acting righteously on behalf of Jesus Christ, how do you explain that? That does not fit into ev any evolutionary schematic. Altruism doesn't fit. But if you live fleshing out the life of Jesus Christ, that also is evidence of the unseen, of what Jesus is doing in your life through his Holy Spirit. Spiritual warfare is not imaginary. The Bible tells us our enemy is walking about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, Therefore, resist him steadfastly in the faith. The same afflictions are being accomplished in your brothers that are in the world. So you're not alone in this battle, the battle for the mind, the battle for the heart, which today is perhaps as heated as it's ever been. Because we all have our little private universes where we sometimes think we can entertain any sins we want. Nobody will know. God knows. And don't fool yourself and don't fall to the devil. 
because he wants to destroy you. You trust in the Lord Jesus and he'll give you the grace to overcome. So you don't have to stand before him ashamed in that day. It's not imaginary. The devil's still using the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life to get Christians to fall. Um, trying to think of that one verse in 1 John. It talks about how anyone who will be a friend of this world is an enemy of God in James. But he's still using these things. So we have to humbly rely on God to overcome temptation. So I need to close. It's a quarter till. Let me close by reminding us that God answers prayer, which is the very breath of dependence. It begins with the right relationship to God. It's a child-father relationship, and it's characterized by a desire for Christ's second coming, knowledge of and submission to his will, and a prayer for the same, asking for daily provision, praying over our plans, forgiveness. There can't be prayer without forgiveness in the heart and a humble reliance on God to overcome temptation. So let's never neglect our most precious resource. Uh, In just a moment, I want to give this away, but I want to close in prayer before I do that. So let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your teachings on prayer. And just as I prayed at the opening, I pray that your words on prayer will stir us to more effective and more vigilant prayer lives and holy lives for Christ's sake. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.